Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Driven Hunter podcast brought to you by Matthew's Mission Crossbows. Today, we are joined with one of my special friends and guest, Tom Interbo from Bluff Country Outfitters. Tom and I go way, way back, and we got a lot of old history we can talk about, and you can tell some probably some Pat stories, but uh, <laughs> we're going to have do. fun. I'm going to pick Tom's brain a lot today about what he knows about whitetail deer. And if I could, you know, pick any guest in the entire world to join us and talk about whitetail deer and be an authority, it would be this guy right here. So we appreciate you coming over here from all the way from Wisconsin, Tom, joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're going to get started by uh, giving some people a little bit of history lesson on how we became friends way back in the day and how, you know, things trend actually has transpired. I, I owe this man a lot of credit because I would not be where I am today and have a TV show and just be in the outdoor hunting industry the way I am without his help and his guidance. I mean, he's really helped me launch my career back in the day and You'll learn some of that as we go along, but uh, you also taught me a lot about white-tailed deer, so hopefully today uh, we can help you guys learn a little bit more, and I, I learn every day from him. He's like going out and learning from a deer, you know, he, and the amazing part is Tom is, what, you're 74 now? Yeah. 74, yeah. and he is still climbing up in trees, climbing up and down these bluffs, easier than a young guy can so still at it uh, running a very successful outfitting operation over in buffalo county wisconsin right across the river here and uh it goes we go way back so uh how did we even actually meet i don't I mean that was way back in the day probably the early 90s i would say i think i saw a picture in elba and more brothers of you a buck you filmed in whitewater it was called garth oh yeah and yep. that's when i first heard pat's name <laughs> and you should have ran later, that at that point yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right there <laughs> anyway anyway i think we met at a deer show or something finally and yep. and then uh we just started uh hanging out and doing the fun things together chasing deer you know Filming deer, shining deer, and I remember when you told me it was love. It was like love at first sight. I were like, "Hey, I've heard of you," yeah. and New Year's Day, "I've I've heard really? of you as well." And we're like, "Hey, let's get together and start dating." So, uh, yeah, I remember that. It was at the Eau Claire Deer Classic, I believe. Yep. yep. And yeah. back then, yeah, and we're like, I think we went shed hunting that first year. I came over to your place and. Wisconsin. Well, we both had the same interests, and yep. and it, it just parlayed from there. It took off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, that was. God. I mean, time flies, right? It, it sure does. Boy, yeah. I mean, so you know, to kind of spin the story ahead a little bit. Um, after you know, we started hanging around together and going shed hunting, and I remember just you know going to places that you hunted and seeing your place and, and stuff over there. And, you know, years later, as we became friends, uh, I'll never forget the time when you called me up and said, hey, Pat, uh, what are you doing tonight or tomorrow and tonight? And I'm like, well, 
I don't know why. And he said, well, if you're not busy tonight, come on over to my house, which, you know, was an hour or so from here. And uh, you didn't live where you live now, but so I came over to your house in Strum, Wisconsin, and it was in the middle of winter, you yeah, know, dead yes. of winter, cold as all get out. Yeah. And you said, and I said, well, what, what you got? What's your thoughts? And you're like, I'm, I want to start an outfitting business. And, uh, yeah, you know, I want to hear your thoughts. And well, we sat down that night with a couple we beers and sat there all night and <laughs> well, we it drank, out, came we up with a, a name. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. I did, you know, it took off from there. Right. I mean, that night was, you know, a huge, I mean, we look back and we laugh about it because yeah. you came up with the name of your outfitting business that night. Yeah brainstorming and then we developed your first brochure yep that yep. that had you know the images uh some of them which i took you know that were in this Area, region yeah. and yeah called the bluff country outfitters yep and it's still going strong <laughs> <laughs> amazing it, it, it was fun I, I mean the whole trip has been fun and, and the things that came into it you, they never realized you know i thought oh, how can i do this i'm having a trouble shooting a Pope and Young Buck myself, how am I going to get hunters on one, you know? <laughs> but it, a lot of things happened that came into the picture that I didn't I didn't realize would. And one thing was having a lot of the hunters start coming and having hunters in the woods. But before that, I mean, uh, the business kind of took off. We, we had been filming deer, and I think that's what we both started doing, and that's yep. how we tied up too because we were both out trying to film and film the biggest bucks we could every year. So as it took off there, the first year I think that we started, I got a call from Jackie Bushman, and he wanted to come hunting. And uh, he was that was back in the infancy days of television and he was on tnn and it was one of the only hunting shows yeah i think it on was TV the, one at, of the first ones at that time right buckmasters yeah and we had put a tape together kind of of our year of hunting that and uh when he came and hunted on his show and he held that up I, it was amazing me the phone started ringing and it didn't stop ringing for a week straight it, you know it was 12 hours a day that was ringing so uh, I really saw the power of national attention or advertising at that point, where that and that kind of kick-started the whole thing, where people got to know about us and stuff, and started coming. And I guess the rest is history from there. You Boy. Pat went to work, come over there, and started guiding with yep. me, and he's taking hunters out, and we didn't have any equipment much at the time <laughs> or anything. Right? Yeah, we'll get into that here in a couple <laughs> minutes, but I mean. Wow, you had a vision, and I mean, I totally give you credit for not just executing it, but just killing it. And you, uh, you knew enough that to get the right people there to give you the marketing and to expose the quality of service that you had and the quality of hunting opportunities that existed, you know, in your area and on your farms, and it just mushroomed from there like you said i mean not just jackie but you had writers you had pat durkin back in the day that was the editor for deer and deer hunting you had so many people that came through the doors that you know as i guided there that we met that were very influential people that really spread the word about 
Bluff Country Outfitters and, you know, the region and stuff like that and, and the hunting opportunity. And it just, you know, expanded from there, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, we're already getting down the road a little too far. You should tell people about how you actually ended up on that farm because I remember that night when we sat there in your, you know, house in town in Strom and we were like, okay, you know, let's start this outfitting thing together. You know, you were going to start it. I was just going to help. Um, but you know, we're faced with a big major question. We don't have a farm to to do the (laughs) outfitting on, you know, minor setback, you know, (laughs) we're going to go play professional golf with enemy golf clubs. But, uh, anyways you're like we got to get a farm so this actually farm came up for sale uh i saw the auction bill and went down and looked at it and i had been hunting in the area and so it pat and his dad actually hunted this farm yeah it was our it was our relatives it was their relatives (laughs) and 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 it came up for an auction and this is the ideal place for this and at the time we'd been hunting in buffalo colony for several years and a leasing head was taking off, and we were losing farms. Uh, we were some of the first bow hunters in Buffalo County, and as everybody started leasing land, we were losing a lot of farms every year to leasing. So I know one year we lost eight farms that we used to hunt, and and uh, at, in the beginning we could hunt any place. Nobody really cared. We right. could talk to farmers that have at it. They didn't understand bow hunting, I don't think, and and they said we can't get them with. A, the shotgun how can you get them with a bow and arrow you know so anyway but at that time when that farm came up for sale i ended up buying it at the auction and scrimped and saved and, and borrowed whatever we could do to get the farm yeah i remember when you bought that farm everybody's mouth was hanging open like he paid that much for that farm and uh of course you know now it it's a song you know yeah. you, you you could sell the next it year, the banker told me, he says, you stole it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just seeing the potential of it, I guess, and, and what it could be. And, and uh, when we, well, when you come, we started out there, we, didn't, we only had a few tree stands. And some of the first year hunts we did were, uh, Pat would, I'd say, well, take a guy over to this stand. Well, I wouldn't sit there. That's not a good spot. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, but we don't have any other place to put them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we only had so many tree stands, so we were really in a juggling act there. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> anyway, we, we got that. through those first years, and it just parlayed from there. And it was a lot of camp camaraderie. People just, I, from the beginning years, I still have people coming there 18 to 20 years later. And some of them come three, four times a year in the summer just to come and staying out because they got to be friends over the years. And and it's just, and then when, when you took off, you, you had, you bet so many guys there and the opportunities for your business just hardly. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just met the right people at the right times. You know, uh, I'll never forget, you know, when Tom, we, you know, he bought the farm and we're getting things up and rolling and, and I'm like, okay, got the farm now. And we got to start tell this, but (laughs) I I came home and I had this vision. I'm going to tear down all these old buildings and use the old wood and make this real rustic looking. And I, I came home and they're all on fire. <laughs> and Pat got there ahead of me and he was burning down buildings. He didn't think we needed. So, no, I, I already knew, knew Tom well and 
well enough that I know that he's a pack rat and he will save everything. So I was just helping clean up the place <laughs> and taking a lot less work off of me if I had a match. <laughs> so yeah, I got rid of most of he come in. He's like, what are you doing? Uh, you're burning half the county down. I said, well, I'm just helping clean up this joint. But uh, yeah, he, we, he got a few of the fires put out and saved a few of those buildings, which later then turned into uh, pretty neat buildings that he refurbished and became the first bunkhouses. Yeah. Even the chicken coop became yeah. one of the first bunkhouses that the couples would get to stay in. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, if you've ever been to Bluff Country Outfitters, you would all know what I'm talking about. Tom's very, you know, his vision, it, it's not like you're going to be staying in this you know, new sheet rocked building. It's it's all authentic and rustic and antlers everywhere that you look. I mean, there's there's a deer horn hanging and um, it's just really a cool camp atmosphere. Um, that's just, I guess, is part of the reason why you know so many people just come back year after year after year. They just love the whole atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, when I drove into that farm, too, in the valley up there, I thought I could just picture it because it was like an old couple living living back there at the time. And and all these apple orchards and, and, and the, the valley, the way it set in, there were springs and the creeks, and, and it was just a perfect setting for, for, for just a, a wonderful hunting camp. I, actually, the first year I was there, you were working at Buck's Taxidermy yeah. in Wabasha. And, I was doing taxidermy. Yeah, and uh, the guy came, uh, he, I think Buck called me and said, I got a couple of guys from Florida that want to go hunting and wondered if I could take them. I thought, well, I'll pay my taxes because we didn't have any money at the time. No. <laughs> and it was, I'll pay the taxes. And so we, that's how it all started, kind of. We, we got yep. to. That's crazy. I re, you know, I, I never forget that first group. The Rawlingses from Florida, yep. and uh, I still am friends with those folks today. And of course, actually hired uh, one of them, uh, one of their sons. He worked for me for an internship. Yeah, I see. You never know how things go. Things go. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, I actually just seen Brooks the other day. I ran into him. Yeah, wow. but uh, yeah, I met a lot of people and became friends with a lot. A lot of folks, Doc Pete and Doc Gary and everybody, everybody, you know, Ole, and the list goes on and on and on uh-huh. and on and on. But without that experience, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here. I know I wouldn't. So I appreciate, you know, that for sure. Um, what, you know, what were the challenges you think you faced outside of, you know, we already mentioned that you didn't have much equipment. What are the, some of the other challenges that we face getting going in that you know, early days of outfitting? One thing is we each had a pickup truck that you could take two guys with you in. <laughs> and yeah, getting guys cab. out, and we had no roads into the hills and stuff. So a big one was uh, trying to get guys into their stands, which were located on top of the ridges or something, and that meant we had to walk them up there in the dark and come down and get another guy and walk him up in the dark. Or if we went to another property, we'd get two guys in our truck and go. And 
It kept us in shape. <laughs> yeah, I could probably <laughs> use a little bit of that nowadays. We don't do as much of that anymore once we got the roads and the stuff. But that was a big challenge was getting guys out into good spots. And uh, and I, we did have to, you were right, we had to leave early in the morning. Yeah. I mean, we had to get up extra early because you'd tell the guy, look, I got to walk in and it's going to, I got to walk another guy in, so you're going to be sitting in the dark for a while before it gets daylight. <laughs> yeah, and that's all. We, of course, we didn't do it very many guys at that time, and it was it was it worked out, but it 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 did wear on us <laughs> for sure. Yep, it was fun. It was, and then like uh, you know, from the aspect of just the stands and just the plethora of equipment that you didn't even have when we first started, Sorry. and we didn't even have trail cameras back then no. or anything. I remember one of the first things that you ever got. I remember you getting a trail timer, and it was like the thread that, you know, you pull out of one device and string across a, tr a trail, trail over to the other That's device, it. and when that something broke that thread, it would trip that clock, and we thought, man, we have hit the big time. Yeah. <laughs> we got the edge now. Yeah, We're going to figure pretty... these big deer out. How uh, obsolete is that, though? Right. That's so. That's crazy, and for many years you produce your own trail cameras and well we know. started building our when digital ones well the crazy part was is that we started running trail cameras with film and we 24 pictures or, or 12 or 24 and then yeah. we'd have to drive you know 25 miles to a one hour photo get them developed and it was probably all of a door or just a branch blowing in front of it yeah and it got to be an all-day job just to try to run trail cam. So when digital one came out, that was such a big breakthrough. But the, we ended up building our own first because there wasn't many on the market. And, of course, when we started this whole thing, there really wasn't a lot out there on deer and hunting deer in magazines or anything weren't, weren't real prevalent at that time. So to, we had to learn about deer ourselves. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but... Uh, I learned from the hunters that were there because you could do setups and you always had, if you had 10 or 12 hunters in the woods during the rut on any given day, you got to know what was going on in that many spots. So you learned at such a faster rate because it wasn't just you hunting and seeing one spot at a time, you know, or yeah. we learned at a fast rate of what was going on and and it, it, it just took off from there and every we're still learning <laughs> well you you have definitely mastered and like you said you had over this many years you have so many people out there that become your eyes and ears you know to tell you what's going on how how things are going and you know what the deer are doing on a day-to-day -day basis that it, it didn't take you long to fine-tune and learn your niche and figure out this is where I need to be at this particular time. And we'll talk about that here coming up is how you, you know, you learn to pattern these deer and be one step ahead of them instead of one step behind yeah, them. So I think that's really ultimately, you know, help your success with all your clients is you, you know, where to be putting these guys in a particular type time of, year. Time of the year. Yeah. yeah. So that's a great point. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. How much land did you actually start with back in the day versus what you got now? Uh, when it, the farm when I bought it was, uh, I think it was 311 acres. Mm -hmm. And and then, uh, of course, that was years back, and everybody was coming in and leasing. So the leases that I've had over the years, uh, I 
the ones I have to, to this day. I, at one time I had I had at least another farm, not in Buffalo County, but south along the river, and there was years I had Ernebach and had put a lot of pressure on us because right. everybody that came to hunt had to shoot a doe first. Well, it, the number of hunters that we had come through, if we would have shot, we would have shot every doe off and and then we wouldn't have had any deer. You did shoot a lot of does. Yeah, we shot 24 one year. 24 yeah, does. Yeah. And Just it, to get those guys buck tags. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that anyway, those, those, those uh, uh, as far as uh, I leased farms in, in around the area fairly close to me, and everything else was getting leased up. So I still have the same leases I had 25 years ago. So I didn't lease a farm that somebody was hunting that – you know, took a farm away from somebody else, basically. I was, you know, have the same farms I've always had and like being one yeah. of the first ones in there. I've had farms that got sold over the years and 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 uh, lost farms to leasing, but... Do you think you have to have a big farm to grow big deer and, and shoot big deer? Well, it depends on what your neighbors do, too, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the number of hunters definitely is a... Is a thing if you're going to grow big deer. I mean, I did hunts over the years with different, like a lot of first-time hunters and a lot of women hunters, and they never shot a deer. And to get them into hunting and stuff, we and uh, I looked at it like uh, if you have certain deer, there isn't always big deer on every farm, and and there isn't always a potential deer probably there, but there. Uh, there are certain deer that you can see over the years. You watch and follow from year to year, and you can see how they develop. Uh, you, if your neighbors like uh, are are doing QDM too and stuff, then that sure helps because the deer aren't getting shot. You know, the deer that they follow, deer if you follow them from year year what they do in a year's time, how they change from month to month and on summer feed and then going into the fall and and the uh, breaking up from their bachelor groups becoming loners and then and then they uh uh an older deer three or four year old deer it's totally different lifestyle than a young deer you know like a year and a half or two and a half right uh they do all the running and stuff and the big boys just lay up and don't move much and yeah, when they're vulnerable when they're moving and they only do that certain times of the year so the specific dates of hunting and weather patterns sometimes it varies probably every two weeks during hunting season that they're doing. They're in a whole different pattern than they are, so that's why you have to change with them. You know. Well, that's and you're the master. You have learned that just by having that resource available with all those hunters in the woods at certain times, and you've you've learned these deer's habits. In probably, in my opinion, one of the toughest places to hunt in the entire world. I, I always say because I live, you know, right across the river here. Same type of country. I always say the bluff country in this hilly region that we live in is one of the very toughest places to kill a mature buck. And and, and the reason being, it's just the topography makes it tough. And these deer know how to survive and elude danger and and predators using the terrain to their advantage. I mean, they, they got the winds in their advantage most of the time. Um, they bed with it, you know, to where they can smell you coming. And if they can't smell you coming, they're going to see you coming because it just, 
you know. And you saying that it's very important because you've hunted all over the world and every place there is for, so you know. It's a very tough place to hunt. That's why I always say, people are like, well, come in, I don't see more hunts from, you know, Minnesota and Wisconsin. It's just because it's a tough place to hunt. There's, there's huge bucks. We won't talk about Buffalo County next because, you know, Buffalo County has became over the years, and I think a lot of it's due to, you know, what you've done over there, um, has become the one of the number one counties in the world for Pope and Young bucks and Boone and Crockett deer. Um, I think it's number one in Pope and Young, and I think it's number two maybe in Boone and Crockett. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm sure I'll get some, some yeah. comments, but... <laughs> Anyways, it's one of the leading counties, and and it has been for quite some time now. Of course, there's there's a lot of hunters, but the deer density numbers are high because there's just that much habitat to support it. You know, and I always say, you know, there's food abundance everywhere. If you're in the middle of the hillside, there's still abundance of food. And I'm talking white acorns and browse and stuff. But if you go to the top of the ridge... That's a field up there, and that's generally full of either corn, soybeans, or alfalfa, high-protein alfalfa. And then at the bottom of the the, the hills, there's also food. food. And I'll, I'll add something to that, too. I, since I've been in Buffalo County uh, 30 years ago, it, the habitat there has changed a lot. And the reason being is, you know, that was all settled by, you know, uh, Scandinavians and Germans and stuff came in there and settled small farms. Yeah, they're all farmers back all then. All farmers, and they all had cows, and they had, you know, pasture. And, and over the years, all the small farms have gone out, and all that land's been bought up basically by QDM guys that are trying to grow big deer, and it's all old apple orchards, and they've all of them on the properties of probably, I would say, 80% or more of the land in the last 25 years has been sold for that reason. But they've gone in and put in, you know, ponds and watering holes and food plots everywhere. And it the the and woods let those, itself... And those pastures grow up. Pastures grew up, so the habitat there has gotten so much more habitat and so, so much more remote, basically, or, or thicker. And with they planted hundreds of thousands of trees. I don't know. I mean, we planted a hundred thousand ourselves. So it's right. like I don't, over the years that, and I've I've noticed that the the animals there. I mean, the deer. It's just that much more cover for them. But there there been a lot of bears that moved in there. Uh, we never used to see bears there. It used there's a lot of bobcats ton of coyotes all as predators have moved in there too. so it's so it's you would say it's helped help the wildlife populations you know by increasing the habitat and and managing it wouldn't you say mm-hmm. that they're healthier than they've ever been yeah because of i i feel that they, they are yeah I, well that yeah. that just serves our point about how hunters you know put back in the resource and are good for not just harvesting animals but you know for overall wildlife in general in i mean general, habitat yeah. it just putting back into it i i get and i know you're the same way get more out of just working on and improving my land you know and putting more into it than taking back that's fun that's the fun part about it yeah, yeah we yeah, we fun. just plant so many trees now and stuff like that and just the things you've done over there like if you go to tom's and you by the way, if you get over in Buffalo County, 
you need to go see Tom. I mean, he's always had an open door policy. Come and say hi and stuff like that. But you drive back in his valley and it's so pristine, like he said. And he had that vision from the start. But you also notice that Tom is a waterfall expert. Any little stream that has a trickle, he's built a little waterfall. He just likes waterfalls. <laughs> and I've, I've fell victim to helping him build these waterfalls over the years. So we always give, heckle and give him a hard time because, you know, if you're going to help Tom, you're going to at some point be in the mud up to your elbows with, uh, you know, trying to put rocks here or there to make the water flow over them. Just for the scenic value of it, um, but it's just... Again, it's insanely beautiful, and it's manicured, food plotted. Um, the deer, you know, find a haven there as well. So, you know, you get over to Tom's, um, look him up. Uh, Buffalo County, again, you know, one of the best places in the world and still is. Um, if you had to kind of, you know, pick a factor yeah, what what has made Buffalo County the renowned county in the world for for whitetails? It's just is it been QDM, or has it been other things? Now, I I can kind of help set this up by saying, you know, when you first came into the scene over there and you were hunting there and 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 how things were kind of setting up themselves, and this is when I first just started getting to know you. Um, you have been out doing your own filming, home filming, and I think you had a VHS camera and, and back in the day. And uh, in back, you could, you could shine legally. So you were out filming all these deer, mainly at night, you know, with this, with this light and stuff. And you were uh, wanting to show people in your area, and specifically your neighbors, that these big deer exist. And if you, you know let them get bigger, you know, it's just going to keep producing and keep really going. And you produced a series of videos. I'll never forget these because this is kind of where Tom and I really came together. Um, in that first video you called Monarch Valley, it was, and it didn't start off Monarch Valley. You just kind of, I think it was called the Bucks of Buffalo. Yeah. And, and uh, produced it just for locals. And I think that the popularity just locally, you're quick, you had to start making all these tapes for everybody and sending all these copies out. And then one thing led to another in QDMA or quality deer management association out of the South called you and said, Hey, we've seen this video. Would you rework it for our national organization? Because it fits exactly what, what we stand for. Yeah. I, I got a, a call from Robert Manning at the time was the chairman of the board for QDMA and they were just starting out and and uh, Rob Wagner and him had seen a copy of this tape which was just my year of hunting and passing up a lot of deer and talking about them and, and reacting with them and grunting them in and doing different things and I I just I had so much many hours of footage I got it down to like an hour and I gave it to the neighbors that that hunted and basically meat hunters and shot whatever and a lot of the bucks in the tape that we had grunted in and had come in and were talking about were ones that they shot that year. Yeah. And then they showed it to their hunting buddies and they and I, I ended up I got six hundred calls that guys wanted copies of that tape. The old VHS <laughs> and it was tapes. crazy. It wasn't even meant to make a video. It was 
you know, and you were filming at the time, it was just when VHS cameras came out, and, yep. and it wasn't even my camera. My brother-in-law gave me a his and said, take it down there and film some of those box. <laughs> and Pat, I met, when I met Pat, he was filming with a 35-millimeter still camera. Hey, I'm not getting into that video stuff, he says. <laughs> he was going to stay with his 35-millimeter. A lot of that changed. <laughs> yeah, boy, I guess it did, right? Yeah, I can remember you saying that. They laugh. But anyway. See uh, what kind of path you led me down, Tom? Yeah. Now we've got, <laughs> yeah. we got these video cameras rolling all the time. For sure. Yeah, it's but those those videos, you know, the first one called Monarch Valley, then you had one called Legend Lane and Monster Alley, then was your third in the trilogy. And those videos today, people still talk about those videos. I'll run into somebody out in a different state and they're like man i remember back in the day when i saw you on those videos tom interbo produced and and i'm like why <laughs> 25 to, years yeah ago. <laughs> that i was a lot younger looking then um but i, they, I, w- I they still enjoy them. them yeah I, I i still get calls on them and uh, you know it's like 25 years later but you know people That's saw them a- years ago and said and they were kids and now they're older hunters and they said that you know they got me going on it but it was qdm that called me and wanted me to they wanted to put a blurb in there from them so i they had me send copies to the 13 biologists that run the study programs at the different universities james Kroll from texas harry jacobson from mississippi and david Gwynn from clemson and they went through the tape and kind of critiqued it as far as what I was saying in there, and I, they, some of the stuff they said, well, you can't say that, and I said, because it's not a proven fact, and I said, well, so I got around it by just saying, well, all this, this is not a proven fact. It's what I found to be true in 30 years of hunting. Right. <laughs> so then they they used the tape and sent out to all their members that joined QDM, and they came flew up here and shot a three minute blurb to put in there to tell about their organization and what they had just seen on it. And yeah, I, so. you know, and we just did their 30th, this last year, we did their 30th anniversary of QDMA uh, down in New Orleans. And uh, we talked about, you know, the old days and the history that we had there and to see how that organization has really grown and what it stands for and stuff. And just to, to know that I was kind of a part of the early days and especially you being more of a pivotal part than I was and how you helped that along, especially with those three videos, you know, um, if those videos are still, you can still get them, right? Well, I, I did have them put onto a, you know, a DVD. DVD. Right? I put yeah. them on three on one. And of course, that was several years ago. I sold them out instantly. <laughs> so I never you. really reprinted them. I should reprint them because I still get calls on them. Yeah, yeah. That's that would be great if we could yeah. maybe actually have, I think, the video series. I should start putting that out there digitally so somebody can watch it. That would be fun to yeah. just show people some of that stuff because it was so, you know, we followed a lot of life's stories about these particular deer, deer. whether they were albinos yeah. uh, in the area or just particular bucks in general, you know, um, it was fun to, to see that. Nobody really followed about. individual deer like that for, from year to year. Where right. Some of those albinos were like nine or 10 years old in the wild and being able to film them every year and follow them was pretty interesting. Yeah. It, you know, it's, there's, that's one thing that I really learned about Tom back early on is that he had such a passion to 
not just go out and harvest deer, but just the appreciation of, you know, following them, learning their habits and stuff like that. It was just, you know, he taught me so much in, in over the years about, you know, this is where you should set up, how you should set up on these deer. And we would, of course, have all these conversations. I remember so many nights where you would be sitting in your office with your yellow notepad making notes. And that was always his famous little <laughs> notepad. He had, he had to make his, you know, list and stuff. And pretty quick, he was like, you know, his head was down on his chest and he was out cold because he'd been working. So been up since four o'clock and, and going hard. I'll, I'll never forget the time that you and I been, you know, guiding our butts off. And uh, I remember we pulled in and we took some hunters over to Azaz and we pulled in there and we parked there at, at the parking site and we ran our hunters up and then we met back in the truck and we were sitting there talking. And the next thing you know, we're, we're both, both past, <laughs> both asleep and we woke up and we looked at each other. And we're like, man, we're tired. <laughs> Yeah, oh, there was, was so many. That was so fun. But good the old days. Uh, Speaking of Azaz, that was I'll re- another story quick on Tom that he uh, he said one time, he said to me, he says, oh, I got it. He goes, I just hung a stand over in Azaz, and it's it's a dynamite spot. He said, I'm going to have you take a hunter over there. And I said, okay, you know, I ne- I've been on that hillside a lot. And he said, oh, you can't miss it. He said, uh, you just go up to the, where there's a big oak there along the edge and then you cut up there and you go up about 100 yards and then you'll you'll hit see another big oak and then you kind of cut over to the right about 50 yards and he said it's it's right in there somewhere so <laughs> you can't miss it i'm like okay so i should have known when he said that 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 was going to be a bad deal so i hear i take this hunter in the next morning and it was one of the mornings where it was it was pretty cold um and he's got all his stuff on, and we go try to quietly go up and get in this hillside stand that's, you know, basically on the edge of a bedding area. And we get up in there, and I'm not really trying to flash my light around too much, but I'm trying to identify this oak tree that Tom's been talking about. <laughs> well, I finally I figure out where the first one was. Well, so I get up there, and there's, there's like a thousand big oak trees, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. You know what? This oak tree said, take a right and go another 50 yards. Well, long story short, we ended up walking around there for the next hour looking for this this tree stand that I could not find. And finally, it got daylight, and we were pouring sweat. And finally, we find the tree stand, and we tromped that whole hillside so much that I felt like we didn't have a chance. But I went back, and Tom goes, hey, do you have any problems finding it? And I said... Uh, slightly, but <laughs> I said, next time we're going to have to use some bright eyes or some tape. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Yeah. You don't forget those instances, things that go wrong. And oh. If they can, they will, you know, yeah, you and, learn that over, but that, that was a, I think a key too, though, every year looking at the operation and in making a list of where the weak points were and say, these are the first things we're going to take care of. And so by the time hunting season comes, you're all set up and you're, you've overcome things like that that oh. could go wrong that maybe would, you know. So. I And I always had a plan to, you know, trim the shooting lanes. And Tom can tell you, he, he would take and hide the chainsaw on me all the time. 
<laughs> well, after he burned down the buildings, you could see why. <laughs> but yeah, I remember once we had a really nice and a thick area where these bucks were coming through right along this steep edge, and and we had a big stand in there, and, and Pat was going to do some filming in there. We get up there, and he was clear cutting the area. <laughs> Gino was with us, and he had hunted in there. And he said, "Oh, just, just hold on. I'll head back and get the picnic table." He goes, <laughs> so he put it out there. It looked like a park up there. <laughs> I wanted to make sure if I saw a deer, I could shoot and kill him. <laughs> I always told Tom, I think that was part of his plan. I teased him. I'm like, "I get what you're trying to do here. It says you put the hunters in there, and they can see the deer, but they can't shoot them." It's like one of them catch and release programs. I'm like, that's your plan because the shooting lanes were always like this, you know, where it was just solid branches. And I like want to, you know, when I have a shooting lane, I always said it needs to be as big as like a, so where you could drive a semi through it. And he, he never liked that because he's very natural. Like, uh, you know, just maybe bust a twig here or there and not disturb anything. Cause you know that that's what bucks pay attention to. And some of the some of the hunters I got too, I knew that they were moving around a lot in the stand. And I thought, well, I gotta hide them as much as I can Aww. so the deer gets in here to them. So and it was fun in those days. We had a good time. Oh my gosh, you have guided how many deer? How many Pope and Young deer do you think you guided over the years? Probably as not as many as you've shot, but <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Maybe that. around five hundred or so, maybe something yeah. like that. Yeah, because um, we were just talking about that earlier. Mm -hmm. Like, how many has 500 Pope and Youngs for clients over the years? How many How many think were gross Boone and Crockett? Oh, I would say 15 to 20 maybe, somewhere in there. Wow. Yeah. Remember, you remember when Monty shot the boss? <laughs> yeah. That's one really kind of got us all go, go, yeah. fired up in the first place. Yeah. One of the first years we were doing any of the guiding, and and Monty Nichols, who is your brother-in-law, and you had filmed that buck like about two months before that when you were going home from the farm there. And yep. Saw him crossing, and oh, that was one of the biggest bucks in Buffalo County at, at the, the time. time. Yeah. At the time, two o six and change or something. Netted was that. Yeah. Netted two o six. Wow. Yeah, I remember when that day. Yeah, I, I'll never forget it, you know, when he shot that and, and you guys recovered it. And just the excitement level of that kind of deer, because it was one, something that you've been working so hard at finally achieving getting a deer that caliber. It was that, that buck was the first uh, Boone and Crockett buck shot in Buffalo County with an archery. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And think how many since then have been taken. Yeah. That just yeah. shows you how Buffalo County has transpired yeah. into what it is today. You know, it's it's crazy. Um, what other bucks stand out to you? You know, if if I had asked you, like, obviously, you know, the the boss or Monty's buck stands out that we just talked about. Any other bucks to stand out that your hunters oh, have taken or shot? There's a lot of them. Yeah, I mean the. Uh, the one shot on Emmons there that was that was that buck was a he was, was one eighty something, and uh, that was like a three year deal on that buck that I'd I'd seen him over three year period and and just uh, all of a sudden I had a hunter out when I went to pick him up and 
he was just waiting for me along the road on, on the property there and came to pick him up and he it was his last day of his hunt and he goes, you ain't gonna believe what just happened. And he says, I'm sitting here in the ditch and all of a sudden I hear clip-clop, clip-clop and I turn my flashlight on and there's this Boone and Crockett buck going right down the center line in the road. And a uh, light went on that two years, the last two years before that, across the valley in the morning I'd glass and I'd see this buck chasing during the rut. Yep. And he, and so he, that was his last day. A new guy came in and first day, first morning, 7.30, I had him go up to the stand I had up in there and he shot him about 7.30 and it's a 180 something. That was one. Uh, that was a typical too, right? Yeah. Mainly yeah. typical. Yeah. Yeah, he, and, then, and you just figured his pattern from you know again what yeah, your hunters it, had it, seen it, and what you just kind of clicked back you know past things that happen on those deer, and from year to year a lot of those uh, same things repeat themselves and those bucks hang in certain areas at certain times of the year they you got to change with them as the hunting season progresses, you know and what, whatever they're doing at that time of the year if they're locking down with does or if they're out looking for a doe, running scrape lines or you know, and uh, uh, a lot of the big bucks, there was one that you were hunting that uh, was quite a story, too, the one that was over on Hoover's that time, and we'd put an old food plot in there, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that was kind of a crazy story, too, because I uh, took a guy over there to hunt and had him sitting on his one little finger, and he, and he was going to sit all day, and in the morning... Some guys came in on a Nick's property right across from them, probably about 100 yards from them, pounding and building a, a stand in there. And he was trying to call me and couldn't get me because he didn't have any reception in where he was sitting in there to come and get him. And about about noon they left. That oh, boy, they're fine now. So 1 o'clock they come back, start pounding again. And he, so he's sitting there all day listening to that. And about 3.30 they left, and 4 o'clock there's... Boone and Crockett Buck stands up and walks in right in front of him and he shoots it. And that was that's on the cover of that book that I did with Pat Dirk. And Ain't that crazy? Yeah. That just that just goes to show you that you know you should never give up on something just because you have this thought process in your head. Well, that that's messing everything up, and I'm just gonna get down and leave because. And that's a you, good point. You know, I think a lot of people make that mistake. I personally have made it a million yeah. times. You're like, you know what? Um, I just, I think I'm going to get down and go over here and I'm just getting impatient. And next thing you know, yeah. you know, my impatience costs me a deer because I'll just start down the tree or something. And I look out and there, yeah, there goes there, the big there one. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. that's a, that's a great point. The, what, the biggest one is probably Moses. That whole story, and of course, you did a whole show on that. And we, how many- you had to bring that up too, didn't you? <laughs> I knew we, I knew we weren't going to get through this podcast without mentioning Moses because everybody asks me about Moses, which I think is one of the most famous deer that that I never actually ended up getting. Um, that's we all thought you had him. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. this story is phenomenal. I. A lot of people know the story already, yeah. but those who don't know it, you know, you should give them a little quick rendition of how it, because we'll, we'll put in, those that are listening to the audio version, there's a video version, and you can see the video portion of this, uh, and it'll have the, the uh, cutaways in there. Well, 
Moses showed up on the farm, and at, when he got to be three years old, he started to be pretty recognizable. And I think you found the sheds off him that year, up up by the pond, up on the north side there. Yeah, he was decent. He wasn't no giant at, at the time, but, but he had he, some stickers and stuff yeah. starting. Well, when he ter- got to be four, then he started looking real good. And at five better, and at six better. <laughs> but Pat started hunting him pretty intently because you're you had taken off on your career at the time, and you were you needed to shoot a nice buck like that. And so you, you spent quite a bit of time at it. At and we had him coming in, but every time he did, it was when you weren't there. So I think he had that's figured out there for a while. And then the the sixth year, when he was six years old. Pat says we got to move, and uh, ended up putting a stand up up this little drawer just above the steep part where he kind of could approach it through the draw. So we went in the same way that we had always been going in, and sure enough, here he shows up in the afternoon, and Pat gets a good quartering shot at him, and it looked like a heart shot. I mean, we looked at it, we left him go overnight, and and. The shot looks beautiful. If you if you get a chance ever to watch the story of Moses, you, you better watch it because it's incredible. Because everybody thought that the deer was dead, and and we ended up going the next day. Never found the arrow. We ended up getting a dog and got on the trail. Found, actually, found he went around the ridge down below and climbed straight up over the ridge and into a bowl and found a little blood in a bed there. And and then we found some back down across the valley low. And went through this big cornfield the next day, and and uh, never we spent weeks looking. We're, for weeks these deer. we looked we're, for them for we two were, weeks. We yeah. were thinking he's dead. Yeah. And a month later, come driving in the driveway, and he's chasing the doe right along the driveway, like a ghost. Like a ghost. It was like you got to be kidding me. And he <laughs> so didn't even. He didn't. It looked like nothing had ever happened. Happened to him. To him. And then I I did get a picture that that in September is when you had to hit him. In November, I got a really beautiful picture of him on a scrape. You can oh. see where the spot was on where he had the head hit him. That was that's the most infamous photo that still haunts me to this day because it's a twelve ring spot. Like yeah. you can see where my arrow or my broadhead had entered, and uh, again, it, it like if you have nightmares about deer <laughs> like I do, <laughs> I mean that's, that's what I always have the nightmare about. You know. Uh, anyway, that was that. We learned more from that deer than I think any deer I've ever followed. Really, you know. That's uh, crazy. Yeah. Uh, another one that we. What we, happened? So after, what happened after oh, that? Yeah. Well, he, he ended up getting shot. Well, it was the last day of the bow season, uh, and that same year he was six years old. And I had all the hunters out in the woods, and I walk out on the porch, and he's standing with a doe by my granary looking at me so I get my camera and start filming him and he chases doe must have been coming in he across the valley and went up on the ridge and and uh two days later the second day of the gun season he uh, Trevor was just toward evening and along my field on top and he came, uh Trevor Old Olison was hunting up there and he come out of the woods and come down along that edge and and he ended up shooting him with the rifle and so Pat and us, we did kind of an autopsy on him, and Pat's arrow had entered in right right behind the front shoulder, hit a rib, and it hit the rib just perfect, 
and glanced forward, broke the rib ahead of it, went through and hit the rib ahead of that, and never went in the cavity. Just went up underneath his shoulder blade. Yeah, yeah and hit, and, and it goes to show that if you would were, would have been off a half an inch either way, you would have got that deer. Yeah, because the air would have glanced enough in, to go in. It would have glanced in yeah. instead of, you know. And not, like, like, all the way. It's like I always said, it was like shooting... Uh, Archers have known this because a lot of them have done this, where you shoot through the woods and you hit a branch and your arrow just goes way off into the outer space. It's the same when you hit a bone. That arrow is going to change its trajectory. And that that deer had such big, heavy, he was so big body that he had heavy ribs. And when that arrow hit perfectly dead center, it was enough to really change the trajectory of that enough to where it glanced at the arrow uh, off the ribs and went up under that shoulder cavity. But as that deer ran off that day, after I shot him, I, I was celebrating. I'm yeah. like, I got Moses. Yeah. And because the arrow had great penetration and it looked like it was stuffed right in there, you know, all the way up three quarters yeah. of the way. And in actuality, yeah, it was up underneath his shoulder blade and into his neck region and not in the cavity. Yeah. That was, that was it. I learned a lot from that shot too. And or mm-hmm. where you hit a deer, as an art, a lot of you know archery guys hit deer and think they're killing shots, and that's probably looked like the most perfect shot you could make on a deer. I learned on that one. Yeah, you know, if you've watched my my stuff since, um, I that day taught me something, and it's ha- happened to me one other time. Those quarter and away shots are tricky, yeah. and you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, they're they're super deadly," and you know, but you're working angles, and when you start working angles, instead of perfectly broadside, there's deflection issues like we had on Moses, and we tend to always cheat a little bit to, you know, the they always say shoot for that opposite leg, you know, to where that opposite leg is in position. That's where your aiming point will be on the front side. So sure. you kind of line that up, um, at, and then you, that helps you determine the angle, but... In video, people don't understand angles because the camera, camera, you know, it's yeah. flat. So we always tend to sh- hug it a little tighter to the shoulder to make it look like a better shot. Yeah. When sometimes that angle might change so much that it might come out in its neck region, and you might only one lung them yeah. instead of double lung them. So I've learned to just be more patient after that time. If I would have been more patient that day and waited, he was not going anywhere. Yeah. He just stopped feeding. Waited for him to just get a little more broadside. He would have been mine, and the rest would have been history. But I got buck fever, and <laughs> and uh, shot a lot of deer since then. And I just, you know, those quarter and away shots can get you um, sometimes just because of those angles Angled. and the deflection That's issues. That's a good point. A really so, good point. And, and I always said, you know, you shoot them, you shoot them back in the guts, you generally always get a deer. It might take a day or two to get them. But, you, you know, once you start playing it forward, you got uh, shoulder blades and you know, leg bones to contend with. And you're also working that lung angle where you might only catch part of that one lung or whatever. And it just becomes a whole trickier deal. Um, so always staying back is generally back the better rule yeah, of thumb, yeah. but it doesn't look good for video because people go, oh, I got you on them. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> you want them to say, oh, that's a sweet shot. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, that's that's part of little of the learning curves that we've went through over the years. But and I think um, 
percentage of hunters that I've done to over the years, because there's a lot of hunters, most of the deer that that have been shot have been hit high. And I think it's their angle out of tree stands. We don't hunt as much out of tree stands now as we used to because we do a lot of ground blinds, and those seems, really seem to work good. And I know yeah. you've had experience with that, too. Yeah, we're going to talk about using you know more modern-day blinds and hunting out of blinds here in just a second. But... Uh, that's a good point because I think, you know, it's like elk hunters too. You know, a lot of guys hit elk high, but if you hit an elk high, bye-bye. You ain't getting them because they're so strong yeah. and there's such big country and not easy yeah. to track in country that they're gone. You know, you're yeah. never finding them. They might die, but they ain't going to die soon and they ain't going to die in close proximity. So the, the uh, aspect of hitting an animal high, you know, I, I see that a lot you got to be able to kind of gauge that animal's body language to know if he's on alert, he's going to drop too. You know, that not always your aiming point is where your arrow is going to hit. So if you got a deer that all of a sudden you voice grunt to a stop because you want to get him to stop before you take the shot, he's going to be alert. He's heard something and all of a sudden now he has stopped. He's tensed up like, what was that? And your bow goes off. Guess what he does? Drops. Yep. First thing he does is he drops. Yep. Well, some deer are really good at dropping. Drop a lot. I mean, they can drop a whole body length yeah. before yep. your arrow hits them. So, knowing, you know, knowing that you have to hold low, so your arrow hits where you want it to hit, and psychologically that messes with a person because. You know, you get a deer that's 20 yards and you voice grunt him and, and now you're you're settling your pin at the bottom of his chest instead of right behind his shoulder where, where, where it's perfect. Yeah. It It's sometimes, you know, and then longer shots are even more important because, you know, by then, they, uh, you know, longer shots, they have more time to react. Yeah. I have quite a, quite a bit of video of that instance and they do drop almost a whole body length in some of the shots. And so you can put that cursor right where they, uh, oh, you where they're shooting and and you see yeah you see by the time the arrow gets there yeah you know but with nowadays with the the modern day bows they're pretty fast and and the arrows and stuff like that you know that does help that that factor out but again you know you're hitting that no man's land it's how i mean think about how many bucks over the years have got away that you your hunters have hit a lot yeah a lot of deer i just uh Picture of one on, uh, it's been, I think it's on YouTube or it's on, it's on the line somewhere of a deer in that no man's land that must have been shot in Michigan with a shotgun. And it's a hole, you can see light right through the middle of the deer, and he's fine running around. There, I, I've seen a couple hit there that guys thought they had him and then never found him. And a couple months later, gun scene shoot him, and it's healed over right on both sides, you know. And, yeah, and I, I we certainly don't want to give the opinion that archers are not proficient and, and it, that's just part of archery hunting. You know, it's part of hunting in general. Um, they, you know, there is going to be a percentage that are not recovered, but the good part is, you know, archery hunting, you know, if you do wound them, they, they have a better chance of recovering and nothing really ever happening to them because it generally doesn't break bones when you're archery hunting. It's just like a f- superficial flesh wound. So it's like cutting your finger, yeah, yeah. eventually quits bleeding and they're fine and, and it don't affect their life or, or the way they 
you know, live their life it's in the cut, future. Like a cut, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, next year. They, you they're know. very resilient, too. I mean, it's I shot a buck in, in uh, Illinois two years ago, and this buck came in, um, and he was chasing a doe, and I stopped him. He's a big bodied animal, six and a half year old deer. And I had to stop him because he was just right on her tail and he was moving too fast. And I had to stop him. Well, he, when he stopped, he was not perfectly broadside for me. And I shot and he, by the time he reacted to, cause I had grunted him to stop and I hit him in the shoulder. He took off and, uh, I was like, Oh, I knew it. I knew it. it's like that not getting him, you know, no, no way. I mean, but I still, I still followed up. I still blood trailed him, and eventually the arrow come out, and then we trailed him for a long ways, and he quit bleeding. Hmm. And I thought, well, you know, good part is, you know, it ain't gonna kill him. So um, the next day, I was in the same area hunting, not in the same stand, a ways about a mile away actually, and um it was the very next morning you know not even 24 hours later i look up and here he comes he wasn't even limping you couldn't even tell that i hit that deer like nothing had happened you couldn't even see really see the wound if i didn't know that deer perfectly i would have said there's no way it can be that deer because you couldn't ever tell he had ever been shot so he had just recovered that fast and uh he was just out cruising chasing looking for does he'd you know, I almost got another shot at him, but that's just the way it goes. That's amazing how they are. I've, I've saw a couple of times where guys hit deer, and maybe I don't know, how, you know, exactly. They never really know for sure where you hit them until you find them. But following them, and all of a sudden they're making scrapes, and you know, it's like like nothing ever happened. <laughs> I know it. Yeah, it's crazy. If if I had to ask you what is your favorite time of the year to hunt big deer when would that be what if you had to pick a particular season and we're going to walk next thing we're going to do is walk through the seasons okay and and i'm going to ask you like you know where your favorite hunting locations are and tactics for each time of season but if i had to ask you when's your favorite time to shoot a big deer well each each time of the year as the season progresses has advantages and disadvantages. To shoot a big buck, to shoot a buck, probably the chase phase is fun. It's hard to stop them then if they're on a dole. But I would say on a big buck, it would either be toward the tail end of the rut or late season. Um, really? Uh, because a couple of factors. Once, if you, uh, what you find during, when, when the rut gets in the full swing, uh, the dole coming in heat, they say like 80% of them are, are bred, you know, around the second week, probably 10th through the 15th of November. So you think about that as these bucks are locked down with the dole. They're not moving very far. And you saw that hunting down over the hill there by Lamont's that time when I think Gary Clancy was hunting down below and you went over and you filmed 17 bucks that night or something was with that dole where... It just moved over the hill, and yeah. and uh, anyway, but if you think about it logically, uh, there's does coming in all over at that time in that time period. So each doe has a number of bucks building up on her and locked down with her. So there's, I've I've the only times I've seen it hunting myself were 
I had, uh, I saw seven bucks with a doe. I go into a valley in the morning, sat over the hill from that, and they came over the hill in the afternoon, and there was actually eight bucks with her. And so there's it, there's a lot of dead area in the woods at that time. And if it's if I got a dozen hunters out there, invariably somebody's going to be where a doe comes in. But the rest of the guys are in dead areas. So there's pockets of all the bucks are over here or over here. When you get towards the end of the rut, there's most of the does are bred. Those bucks got to travel. They're searching you. To, to find one. So the tail end of the rut is... I actually was able to catalog one that actually was a resident buck of my farm that it was uh, almost Thanksgiving. It was it was during the gun season, and there was really nobody gun hunting around there at that time. A guy called me and said, I, I shot a buck that you got on your website. And he brought it over, and it was a buck I had seen that afternoon at 4 o'clock in front of my house, a buck I knew very well, he had a eye poked out and a sticker off the base. And he shot it the next day at 3 o'clock, six miles as a crow flies across the Buffalo River over uh, over by a, a cyberling farm that he had bought some from them and brought the deer over there. And that deer, the only reason that deer would not go that far. But, uh, yeah, because look at all the, the habitat he walked yeah. over feed everywhere yeah look at where he went to the only reason he went he couldn't find a doe and he and i went years ago it kind of got me into deer hunting i read an old book it was uh, roger rothar wrote this book and last year i thought i haven't haven't seen that book for 30 years i want to read it again and see and he says in there the same thing that uh those deer will travel uh toward the tail end of the rut they might travel six to eight miles in the night and then return back to their home area, but looking for a doe, and then and then they'll lay up again, you know, because the, the post rut is over, so mm-hmm. they they'll lay up till the winter feed. The other thing is late season. Uh, I'd say there that the the main factor there is cold weather. If you uh, if it's if it's warm, if it's in the twenties or even fifteen degrees or something. It's too warm. It's got to be, it seems like 10 degrees and colder, it's got to be the high. If it's below zero, each day is better. And it's a food thing then. They're, the deer, the rut's over, but uh, there's a small percentage of the young does that come into heat, uh, the, the fawns for that year, and they're in those family groups on the winter feed. So those bucks are coming from a distance the big ones that show mm-hmm. up there. I know of several 200-inch bucks shot on the 13th of December on a food situation uh, where they, they they come in to feed where the where the family groups are feeding and a young doe, it's come, Paul Borwick shot that one you were? Yeah. The, the main thing is you just got to beat all the other deer senses yeah. and stuff to get to, to the big get ones because yeah, they, it, they that, come last. That's right, and it, and it, it that's the tough part about that. And yeah. the cold weather's got to be in your favor. But th- that's a, a deal where the, the big bucks are coming to you versus you trying to go to them during the rut when they're picking up a doe on every ridge, you know. Right, right. I, I think what, it's probably one of my favorite times of the year to, to hunt deer here in the bluffs of, you know, Buffalo County or Minnesota is, you know, is that late season period because they are back on a food pattern. I like that. Nicole is both her and I have shot a lot of late season, probably more late season deer than anything else because 
for big deer because they are again they're back on a pattern it's uh it's interesting and all like you know for me there's there's a couple times a year to really kill a big deer you know in this country and that's early season and late season because of food food anything else they become too unpredictable once you know girls become involved and you know messes up their whole their whole pattern and it's not just here if i go to canada where you know in saskatchewan you can bait and those those bucks you know pre-rut they're in they're putting on the feed bag they might be on your your bait site you know um daily and all of a sudden when the rut starts to come in and they start searching they can be 30 not 30 miles but they can be three four miles in, in a different direction and not coming in every day anymore so they're not regular and once that irregular irregularity starts i mean they can get killed by you know some other hunters or or wolves or you know cars Not or whatever in. Yeah, yeah, yeah everything comes into play and you know it's just a lot tougher and then you mentioned the the aspect of when they lock down uh everybody you know that's a deer hunter is you know probably already experienced the lockdown yeah. problems but personally so that's you know, we worry about that because our scheduling is so important to where wherever we go oh. and however we plan our hunts. We don't want to go to a part of the country that might be in lockdown yeah. because you're just going to be sitting there seeing a bunch of immature deer running around yeah. looking. But all the big ones that you really want to shoot, they're not. They're all hemmed up in little draws and little areas where they're locked down with that hot dough and they oh, ain't go they ain't moving yeah. they ain't moving unless you are right there yeah. you know you're not going to get them so that, um, that, that's an advantage that i didn't realize in his outfitting that if you got 10 or 12 guys out there at that time invariably you're going to find yeah. one coming in so you got 12 chances versus one person hunting or two people hunting do you move you're, your you're increasing your the hunters are increasing your odds twelve times. So if you find a doe coming in with all the bucks locking on her, I usually move all my hunters into that area because they're not going to move very far from there. They may go over the hill or go here, here. But we've shot a lot of bucks that way, good bucks, you know. Yeah, you you move in on them, move in on them yeah. because you know they are going to be there. I I mean, well, you taught me a long time ago. One of your favorite places to. When they get into that lockdown phase or that real heavy chase phase is out on the end of these ridges and on the end of these points where it's thick and that's where a doe goes to try to lose that straight buck. up and down area yeah yeah it's just chase and they chase around but he can't really get her because they can pop over the lip of that little end of that ridge and all of a sudden out of sight and then the buck is trying to figure then he has a center scent yeah. trailer and by she can throw them for a loop and eventually maybe get away from them. So we, you know, Tom taught me a long time ago, these, when we get into that phase, we're into that time period. And we talked a little bit about making those adjustments is we would start putting guys in those, those point areas in those thick, real steep areas, because that's where you were going to shoot your biggest bucks. And, and that can be, be midday at that time. You right. Know, end of October, right at the peak chase you know, in October first of November, when they're really pushing those doors, and they're, they they'll 
end up killing them sometimes if they you know they one buck just takes over where another one left off and they run them to death they just they get so tired they laid on they just horn them to get them up and you remember that yeah do you remember that video that we had on one of the tv shows where nicole and i were sitting on that water hole in wisconsin or in buffalo and that buck chases that doe down into that well there was a couple bucks and they chase that doe down into that water hole and she she'd been run so hard and she'd actually been gored in the stomach and uh she was dehydrated and she got into that pond up up to here up to her chest and she was just drinking but yet trying to stay away from them and they're chasing her around in that water and she the only place she could hide keep them away is in the middle of the water and then they chased her out of that water and she dove into this the thickest brush pile that was next to this pond and just laid down and that buck got right this big 10 pointer he was so aggressive he got right into that water after he chased all the bucks away or after he chased all the bucks away and then he got into that brush pile where she was hiding and gored her out of there yeah with his yep. horns, horns. Yep. just so she would get up to eventually so he could chase her down and breed her yeah it's that was the craziest the- sequence of events i'd ever seen yeah it i over the years it's i've seen several they actually run them right off of a, a shale pit one time, run the door wide open, right? And I mean, ended up killing her. She fell the whole distance down there, but ran right off the end of that. <laughs> it was like, you, you just, it's weird, you know, when they get to that point, but it's, it's short-lived. I mean, it builds the end of October, but once it's over, then they give that doe, when she's going to stand, they all back off and kind of give her a room at that time for almost a day where they just they just follow her like a shadow, but they don't push her. Right. You know, so, and that's usually when the big boy shows up. And the younger bucks, if they, if they try to get in on them, they know that that big one will kill them if he gets at them. And he, he tries to run them off if they get close to her. So they just stand there and look at her, and if she moves, they follow her, but they don't. They don't dare get close to her. If one does and he chases it off, then the other one will try to slip in there. Is there is there any favorite particular spots that we just talked about on the end of these points and ridges and the in the steep stuff? Is there any other spots that you would hang your setups or put your hunters on when it's in that in that time frame? Uh, well, it ponds or watering holes because. You know, those bucks are, they're not interested in eating at all at that time. They're just interested in chasing, so they run off a lot of weight. But they get dehydrated because they're running so right. much. They're steady running, so they, they invariably go to those ponds when they come by them, and, and the ponds are always hot at that time. Well, that's great information, Tom. You know, we're running a little long, so we're going to make this a two-part series. So that does it for part one. We'll be back with more information from Tom on part two.